Welcome to Sabbath School Study Hour. I am your host, Jeff Walper, pastor here at Granite Bay Hilltop Seventh-day Adventist Church, pastor of Outreach. We have a free offer that I'd like to bring to your attention, 12 Steps to Revival by Pastor Doug Batchelor. If you call in at 1-866-788-3966 or 866-STUDY-MORE and request number 780, uh, this will only be mailed to North American and U.S. territories. So if you want to text, you can text SH001 to number 40544. Again, that's North America only. Um, or you can go to study.aftv.org forward slash SH001. All right, we have been studying for, well, the last quarter, the entire book of Ephesians. And so today, our last study in the book is going to be a summary. And we're going to look at um, all six chapters, uh, at least we're going to attempt to. And before we do that, I would like to kind of start off with an introduction, if you will. Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. It's a very important point. The proximity of Christ and his spirit is in the inner man. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And so the title of this study is Ephesians in the Heart. And to illustrate God's effort throughout the totality of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation, I'd like to draw your attention to the screen. And I'm going to try to illustrate this. The Bible tells us that God's greatest desire has been to be close to man. And the question is, do we want to be close to God? We find in Genesis chapter one that God created man in his image. And so God created man in his image to be close to him. But then we find something tragic happen in Genesis chapter three. We read about the fall. And in the fall, we find that once Adam and Eve sinned, they no longer enjoyed the presence of God. They didn't want to be close to God. In fact, we find out that they're hiding from the presence of God. And so we'll just notate that here. Man hid from God after the fall. Well, 
God pursued man. God pursues man and he initiates reconciliation back with man. He takes away his fig leaves. He promises him enmity for sin. And then he clothes him in garments of skin. So we find that God longs to be close to man. Even sinful man, God wants to be close to him. And so we see God doing everything he can to be close to his children. Well, we fast forward to another place in scripture where God tells Moses to build a sanctuary. This is found in none other than Exodus 25 verse 8. And you'll remember that God wanted a sanctuary to be dwelt. Why? That he may dwell in the midst of them. So again, we see God wanting to dwell close to his people. Again and again and again, God wants to be close to his people. Now here are two questions. How does a holy God dwell in the midst of sinful men and still be a holy God? Or, or here's another question. How does a just God pardon sinners and still be a just God? Well, the sanctuary tells us it's through the atoning blood of the lamb. This is how a holy God dwells in the midst of sinful man and still is holy. And this is how a just God pardons sinners and is still just and fair. It's through the atoning sacrifice of the lamb. The lamb is central to the sanctuary and central to God's ability to dwell in the midst of his people. Well, there in Exodus, God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. You'll remember in Exodus 19 and 20. And it's interesting to find out that where we read in Exodus 19, that man did not even want to be close to God. It says there in Exodus 19 that the people stood far off from the presence of God while Moses drew near to the presence of God. So we again see this, this sad reality that man doesn't want to be close to God, but God wants to be close to man. And so repeatedly we see this. Of course, the people said, Moses, you talk to us. Don't let God talk to us. Um, we'll listen to you. Yeah, right. They did not listen to Moses. Um, at all, very rarely, in fact. But they certainly didn't want to listen to God because they were afraid of him. They didn't want to be close to him. They had been in Egypt 400 years and they had primarily, for the most part, lost their knowledge of God. And so God was bringing them out of Egyptian slavery that he could reestablish a covenant relation with them, that they could keep the Sabbath, that he could have that closeness with his people. Well, the people told Moses all that the Lord has said, we will do it. They didn't even want to be close to God, but they're saying they're going to obey God. Well, the whole Old Testament is a historical record of God's people not obeying God and not wanting to be close to God. And so God would raise up prophet after prophet to try to turn God's people back away from their sins 
to come back into close communion with God. And what did they do to the prophets? Did they have them over to dinner and embrace them and their message? Or did they beat them up and kill them? Tragically, we find that God's own people hated the prophets. And we better understand what Paul meant in Romans 8, 7, when he says, the carnal mind is enmity with God. It's not subject to his law, neither indeed can it be. So the carnal mind hates God. It cannot submit to the law of God. The only hope for the carnal mind is not that it's dressed up and, and you know, dolled up a little bit. The only hope for the carnal mind is that it's crucified. And in the place of the carnal mind, the sinner is born again and receives the mind of Jesus. And then the law is written in our hearts and in our minds. Well, we find in another place where God communicates that he wants to be close to his people. And made a typo there. We find in, it's actually in um, Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 14, we read that a virgin is going to be with child and he will have a child and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which again means what? God with us. So we see now God is going to give his own son, his only begotten son to the sinful human race. Surely we're going to embrace Jesus. Emmanuel. A little later on in chapter nine, verse six, we read that unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born and the government shall be upon his shoulders. He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Prince of Peace. In the increase of his government, there'll be no end. And so Jesus comes to earth. He doesn't just visit earth. He's given to the human race, which is a most amazing gift. It's something that requires our study for the rest of our life because Christ's humanity means everything to us. Jesus comes to earth, Emmanuel, God with us. And we're told that the human race could only handle Jesus for 33 years. And then we nailed him to a tree like some savage tribe um, performing some sadistic massacre. Well, interestingly enough, in John chapter 14, verse 15 through 17, it's a Thursday night. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. He's teaching them about the Lord's Supper. It's the last Passover. And he takes the bread and he breaks it. He blesses it. He says, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And so there in the upper room, he's telling his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he says, I will pray that the father gives you another helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he will abide with you. And notice with me the proximity. He will be in you. Now, this is significant. 
because now we see the progression of the plan of salvation that now God has found man hiding from him. He restores covenant relation with them through the atoning blood of the lamb. He has a sanctuary built. Why? That he may dwell in their midst. Again, through the blood of the lamb, the atoning blood of the lamb. He wants the law to be written in their hearts. Um, but sadly, the whole Old Testament, we do not see that. Um, I forgot to put up here, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 tells us that God's going to make a new covenant and he's going to write his law now, notice with me, in their hearts. Very important point. And so how is God going to do this? He sends Emmanuel, God with us, to now become one with the human race, forever the older brother of the human race. And through his death on the cross, we can now have cleansing of sin and have Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through his word, now live in us. And this is actually the entire plan of salvation. We find in Colossians chapter one, verses 26 and 27, that God wants to explain the mystery, this mystery where Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Paul said it like this in Galatians 2.20. He said, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. Again, we see this concept, the progression where man is hiding from God. God's pursuing man through the sanctuary, the blood of the lamb. God can dwell in the midst of man. And then he is going to do a new thing where he's going to write his law in our hearts. He sends Emmanuel to be God with us. And we can only handle him for 33 years. And then we savagely nail him to a tree. And the day before we do that, and he lays down his life for us, he's not concerned about his death, his suffering. He's concerned about us. And he promises that he's going to pray the Father to give us the Holy Spirit, the, another helper, the comforter, that he will abide with us forever and he will be in us. This is how Christ is formed in the heart. And this is what the entire book of Ephesians is all about. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, that there's going to come a time where the seventh angel sounds his trumpet and the mystery of God is finished. What is the mystery of God? The mystery of God is that Christ is fully formed in his people. So it's Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness. It's his goodness. It's his power. It's his glory. Everything is about Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Ephesians is all about. Oftentimes, the most popular verse in Ephesians is probably Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This was a popular passage with Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, where we find out that it played a role in his conversion. One of the central affirmations of the Protestant Reformation was that salvation comes not by penance, not by indulgences, not by walking up the La Scala Sancta on your knees, not by flogging yourself, but it comes by grace. 
through faith, by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And then about 150, 200 years later, roughly, we find that John Wesley preached a sermon at Oxford University and his primary text was Ephesians 2, verse 8, where the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Nope, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so I want to highlight this passage a little bit more. Paul says, for it is by grace that you are saved through faith. Um, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Friends, it's not only that salvation is a gift from God, but faith itself is a gift from God. We find in Paul's writings in Romans 12 verses 1 through 3 that we are counseled to, by the mercies of God, to not, um, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And then in verse 2, Paul says, um, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So yes, I agree. I know there is an effort to conform to group thought in this world, but the Lord wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And notice what verse three says. Verse three tells us, Paul says, I tell you by the grace given to me. He doesn't say by his intellectual ability. He says, by the grace of God given to me, to every man that is among you, don't think too highly of yourself, but think soberly. You know, you can be intoxicated on a lot of other things other than alcohol or a big bowl of ice cream. You can be intoxicated on pride and self-worship. And Paul here is saying in Romans 12, verse 3, I tell you by the grace given to me to every man that is among you, do not think too highly of yourself, but think soberly as God has given to every man the measure of faith. And so one of the first gifts that God gives us other than life itself, the beating of our hearts and the respiration of our lungs is the gift of this measure of faith. We all have this capacity to lay hold on the hand of God, on the promises of God by faith. Why? Because we've been given that capacity, that measure of faith. And so it's good for us to think soberly, to recognize that we need help and we have help. We've been given a measure of faith to lay hold on the hand of omnipotence and we've been given the promises of God's word that we can learn to lay hold by faith on God's word and have Christ near to us, not only with us, but in us, in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. This is good news. This is what it means to be born again. 
We were all born of the lineage of Adam. Adam means mankind. And Adam, like Adam, we have all sinned. And our sins have separated us from God. Uh, his arm is not short that he cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But it's our iniquities, Isaiah 59, 2 tells us, that have separated us from God, that he will not listen to our prayers. Now, friends, that doesn't mean that you can, that, that God's never going to listen to you. If we repent, if we cry out to the Lord for mercy and for forgiveness, then God hears those prayers. We turn away from our sin, we forsake them, and we turn to Jesus, the Lord hears those prayers. In fact, 1 John 5, 14 and 15 tells us, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've made of him. So there are prayers that God will not hear. That's when we're willfully sinning and continuing to sin, knowing that we're doing it. Isaiah 59, 2 says that separates us from God and God will not listen. But if we're turning to the Lord from our heart, we're turning to his word like the Ephesians, like Paul, God will hear our prayers. So I'd like to take a look briefly at Ephesians chapter one. Notice with me that verse one tells us that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase again, in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, again, in Christ. So I want to pause there. The name Saul, you know, Paul was not Saul, Saul's original name. The apostle Paul's original name was Saul of Tarsus. Um, he was likely named after, um, he was named after King Saul. He was of the tribe of the Benjamites. And, um, you know, it's interesting, the name that, Paul chose after he meets Jesus. Uh, Paul is the Latin word that means small or little. And it's interesting that the apostle Paul, his original name was Saul. He was named after King Saul, most likely. And it's interesting just to consider an aside here for a moment that when you read about King Saul in the history of his life, especially 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, we find the prophet Samuel giving instruction to Saul, King Saul, and telling him to destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites had, in a way of cowardice, they had attacked Israel's women with children. They're old and defenseless when they were coming out of Egypt and they were in the land approaching into Canaan. And God decided that when the Amalekites um, engaged in warfare in such a cowardice and wicked way to attack the vulnerable and the defenseless, the young and the old, that their cup of iniquity was now full. 
and they were to be utterly displaced and destroyed from the face of the earth because they bore evidence that they were reprobate. You know, when an army attacks women with children and babies in the geriatrics, this is whenever a people group has become reprobate. And it is quite sobering to consider the condition of Western civilization and even the world for that matter, that it is a dangerous world for vulnerable and defenseless people. Uh, women with children, the old, the unborn, the young, the vulnerable and the defenseless. Friends, suffice it to say, the cup of iniquity is quickly being filled, not only for this world, but for this country. And so we're told that things will happen quickly when the cup of iniquity is full in this country. In fact, a Sunday law will be passed when the cup of iniquity is full in this country. Well, King Saul was given the assignment to destroy the Amalekites. Their cup of iniquity was full and Samuel gave him the instruction. He received the message from God, Propheo, mouthpiece of God, speaks the word of God. He gave the message to Saul and Saul went and instead of obeying God, he came back with the king of the Amalekites and then with all this livestock. And he gave the pretext or the pretense of saying to Samuel, as Samuel heard the bleeding of the sheep, he said, what is this bleeding in my ears that I hear? And Saul gave the pretext of piety. He said, well, I have brought these sheep um, to make a sacrifice to God. And Samuel says, Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. And it's interesting what Samuel tells him in 1 Samuel chapter 15. He says, you know, when you first started off as king, Saul, you were small in your own eyes. But now look at you. And the message was basically a rebuke to Saul that Saul had gotten so big in his self-worship and his self-aggrandizement that he didn't even think that he needed to submit himself to the word of God. And even pretended, had the pretense of worshiping God. And I brought all these sheep back to make sacrifices to the Lord. And I brought the king of the Amalekites back. And Samuel says, this day, the kingdom is taken from you. Oh, that we would not be like King Saul, but we would be like the Apostle Paul. That we too would meet Jesus and we would recognize not that we're some, something big and amazing, but that we're Paul, we're little and we're small and that we'd be okay with that reckoning and that we would let Jesus be high and lifted up. Friends, that's a big part of the message of the gospel and a big part of the message of Paul's writings to Ephesus. And so Paul is, has named himself small or little and he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul refers to himself as the least of all the apostles. And yet he was a mighty instrument in the hand of God. Um, well, let's go ahead and unpack a little bit of Ephesians 1. So Paul is talking about how the church is blessed in Christ Jesus, not only with just not like a small blessing, 
but with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And verse four tells us, according that he has chosen us in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. I'm going to pause here. It's good news that we are accepted in the beloved. Jesus was on the cross. And what did he say to the father? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason that the father forsook his son on the cross was that you and I as sinners could repent and claim the blood of Jesus for ourselves, be covered in the blood of the, the lamb and be accepted in the beloved. So remember, Jesus was rejected for us that we would be accepted. That's verse six to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Hallelujah. In whom we have, verse seven, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. According to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. So, God has revealed to us the purpose of the gospel. God wants to give us every blessing in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. And through the atoning blood of Christ, we are accepted in the beloved. And this is precious good news, not only to the church at Ephesus, who were struggling with discouragement from Paul's arrest, but to those of us today who live in a Babylonian world where it seems as though wickedness is growing exponentially by the minute. I'd like to turn in our lessons to page, well, in my book, it's 177, Sunday's lesson, um, or actually 178. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is summarized in Monday's lesson as we are redeemed for community. The purpose for our redemption is community, community with God and community with each other. You know, when you have perfect love for God, the first four commandments, you will be able to love your neighbor as yourself. So you get it right with a vertical relationship with God through the blood of the lamb, through the gospel, then God will write his law in your heart and give you the ability to not only love your friends, but to love your enemies. And um, this is how God writes the law in our hearts through the power of the gospel by faith in his word. So we are redeemed for community. I know some of us, most of us, probably all of us have been wounded in some way by sin. 
and we tend to isolate. We tend to pull back and socially distance uh, and become loners. And God wants to bring us out of that hiding into community with him and with the church at large. Um, invite you invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two, Paul says, and you has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, aren't you glad for those two words? But God, verse four, who is rich in mercy. Praise God, he is rich in mercy. Uh, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. In other words, you didn't earn it. You don't deserve it, but he gives it anyways. Hallelujah. Well, verse six tells us he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So again, we see this idea of in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Um, that's what Paul said earlier in Ephesians 1 verse 3. Remember, he said, he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We see this same phrase in chapter 2 verse 6. He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the message is we are raised up together. God has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. So the whole purpose of the gospel is that God can fill his people and then make us dispensers of his kindness, dispensers of his love to others. That's the purpose of the gospel. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And then the famous passage, for by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. You know, we struggle. Well, let me not hide behind we. I struggle. When I read about Cain and Abel, and I think about how they worshiped God, Cain brought to the, off, to, the, to the altar the fruit of his own labor. He was quite proud of his accomplishment, what he had done. But this is not what God asked for. God wanted the worship 
to centralize around the lamb. He wanted the lamb to be worshiped, not the labor of a man. And so Cain brought the fruit of his own labor to the altar and Abel brings the lamb. We have to be very careful that we are worshiping the lamb and not our own works. Paul uh, very clearly tells us it's by grace we're saved through faith and it's not of ourselves. Let's never get it twisted. Not of works, lest any man should boast for we are not our own workmanship, but his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Verse 11. Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh um, made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. Hopefully you don't remember a time where you're without Christ, but if you're like me, you can remember a time in your life where you are without Christ. Praise God, it's a distant memory. And I don't think about it often. But when Paul says that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Wow, what a tragic position. But notice verse 13, but now, I love the but God, but now. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes, what was the proximity? Afar off, even hiding from God. But now, even you who were sometimes afar off, aliens from the commonwealth of God, from the covenants of promise, strangers, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you <clears throat> who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Again, we see God's effort is to bring us close to himself. Even those of us who are afar off, aliens from the commonwealth of God's kingdom. Hallelujah. <laughs> We have been brought near in Christ Jesus by the blood of the lamb. Verse 14 tells us, for he is our peace who has made both one Jews and Gentiles and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his own flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make of himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross. Oh, God help us to study the cross. Having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off and to them that were near. I love this. For through him, the both have access by one spirit to the father. Now, therefore, verse 19, 
You are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. We're talking about community. Fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the spirit. So God wants to make you and I a habitation for his own dwelling, not to be just in the midst of us, not to just be Emmanuel, God with us, but to be Christ in you, the hope of glory, to have Christ in his obedience, Christ in his righteousness, living in you through the power of his word, through his promises, through the enjoying of the Holy Spirit, that we would no longer live to the lusts of the flesh. You know, Paul says in Galatians 5:24 that all who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its affections and its lusts. The only thing that motivates me to tell myself no is Jesus Christ telling himself no at Calvary and telling the father yes and going through with my redemption. So let's go to Ephesians chapter three. It is very important to be a part of God's church. God has a purpose for his church. The church is the body of Christ. Verse one of chapter three, for this cause, I, Paul, whose name is small and little, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. By the way, Paul was, had been a Pharisee and it, it, I'd like to just underline this for a moment. Sometimes in the church, we think we need to do what we're good at. Um, be careful that you don't try to direct God on where you think you should serve. You know, Paul was a Pharisee who knew everything about Judaism, everything about um, the Torah. He knew everything about um, even the minor prophets. And Paul, interestingly enough, is called by Jesus Christ not to use all of this knowledge and all this, this base of intellectual ability. You would think that God would say, oh, well, you're going to reach the Jewish converts. You need to reach out to the Jews. It's interesting that Paul is not called to reach the Jews because he knew everything about them. He's actually called to minister to the Gentiles, which I would think would be Paul's weakness. And so be careful that you don't tell God where you think you should serve because it could be that God will call you to your weakness because it's in our weakness that God's strength is made perfect. Second Corinthians 12 tells us. And so just remember, Paul <laughs> was not versed in a Gentile um, a, a comprehensive understanding of the Gentiles. And of course, I think this was 
an opportunity for Paul to depend upon Jesus at all times. Well, that aside, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. What's this mystery? Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, that the Gentiles, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, the church, and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me who am less than the least of all saints. Again, we see Paul's humility, his posture of obeisance. Unto me who am less than all the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all men see that what is the fellowship of the mystery? Keeps talking about this mystery. Which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places. We see this term again. In heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So God wants to use the church to make all the world know the manifold wisdom of God. According to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access. There's that word access again with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. He's telling them, look, don't feel bad for me. I'm in prison. Don't faint at my tribulations. I'm okay. This is for your glory. This is to be a blessing to you. Verse 14, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit. Here it is again, where? In the inner man. So the mystery of God is that you would be strengthened in the inner man, in Christ Jesus, by faith, through grace. Well, verse 15, 16 rather that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell, here it is, in your hearts, how? By faith, that you being rooted and grounded together in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled 
with all the fullness of God. You know, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the basket of bread or the house of bread as the bread of heaven put in a feeding trough in the manger, Israel was so full of their ambition that they had no room to be satisfied by the coming of the Messiah. And I wonder sometimes if we have so much indigestion from feasting on the husks of this world that we have little to no room for Christ and his word to dwell in us. Chapter four, verses one through six, we are told Paul admonishes and exhorts the church, uh, the church at Ephesus to walk in unity. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, verse one, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is how many bodies? One body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you. All. Beloved, we are living in the shaking right now. And I submit to you that anyone that is working division, anyone who is trying to pull you away from a simple reading of the word of God, uh, thus saith the Lord, just because cultural norms call for, well, us to follow the culture and not God. They will be shaken out. Now, friends, it's not your work to go and pull up the weeds. But there is a shaking going on and there will be a unifying principle where God's love brings God's people together upon the word of God. And we're unified. The disciples were not of one accord before Calvary. but They were fighting over who was the best. But after Calvary, their ambition was humbled. And they're finally united. May God help us to unite in Christ Jesus. I want to take a look at the end of chapter four. I know our time is wrapping up. Um, I want to exhort all of us to consider what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 29 through 31. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace to the hearers and grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. And let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from among you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Friends, may we not grieve the Holy Spirit, May we press together in Christian unity. May we forgive each other. May we press together to the sacrifice of Christ, to the mediation of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, even the most holy place where the resurrected Jesus is fully manifesting himself in his converted people at the last days. Thursday's lesson is about the Christian's walk. 
You know, the gospel is not just for the corporate church at large, but it's for the Christian to walk individually. If you're a Christian only when people are watching you, then you're not really a Christian. God wants us to be a Christian in our own personal lives. And then at the end of Ephesians 5, in the Christian home. If you're a Christian, you'll be a Christian at home. And the Bible tells us in verse 22, what a Christian home should look like. If you've accepted the gospel, wives submit yourself to your husbands as unto the Lord. And then husbands, the husbands are the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be subject to their husbands in everything. It's not a popular message, I understand. But we're talking about God's plan for unity, not only in the church, but in the home. Husbands, here you go, men. Love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, men, that's quite a calling to love your wife like Christ loves the church. You think about how Christ loved the church. Romans 5 tells us that even when we were sinners without strength and enemies of God, Christ demonstrated his love by dying for us, the ungodly. We call this unconditional love. And so men, if you'll equip yourself with that same vision to love without condition, to give, to express clearly the value of your wife, it's likely that she will reciprocate with respect. Well, in closing, I want to touch on Ephesians 6. Paul closes his letters to Ephesus or the letter to Ephesus with a call to put on the whole armor. You know, it's been said by some poor man of ignorance that Christianity is for the weak. Another pitiful maxim was that religion is an opiate for the mass, the masses. Friends, if you want to know what it is to be strong and courageous, I challenge you to follow Jesus and buckle your seatbelt because all hell will rise up against you. And there, there is an enmity in the heart of unconverted men and women where they hate God. And if they hate God, they're not going to love you, a follower of the lamb. And you have to have clear expectations as a Christian because a servant is not greater than his master. If they hated Jesus, don't think that uh, they're going to love you. And you have to be okay with that and love them anyways. Jesus didn't make it out of this planet without scars. And I assure you, if you follow the lamb, you are not going to make it through this Christian walk without enduring some scars as well. But praise God, Jesus went before us. And so in closing, Paul from prison tells the early church at Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God. This is not a carnival. This is not six flags over uh, the church. This is a war the great controversy that we are engaged in between Christ and Satan. And um, it is important that we put on the whole armor. Paul closes his letter in verse 10. Finally, my brothers, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and put on the whole armor. Notice with me, he doesn't say part of the armor. Put on the whole armor that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto yourself the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt with the truth and having your breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, take the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and pray always, always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, watching there whereunto with all perseverance, don't give up and supplication for all saints. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray that we had received the message of the gospel as Paul wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not only for the church of Ephesus, but for those of us in the end of time in 2023. May we receive the mystery of God by faith through grace that Christ wants to be formed in us fully, that we can manifest to all the world the wisdom of God, that the church would function properly as a body, that everybody would know their place in serving the Lord, not only the church, but us individually and in our homes, that we would follow the wisdom of God. Please, Lord, bless us each one to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen and be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want and most important, to share it with others.